black men suffer in silence. And it may start off with, you know, a slight symptom that we ignore, mm-hmm. right? Something so basic that could probably be addressed. But imagine driving 12 years with your check engine light on, on your car. Come on, man. You got to, when that check engine light comes on, it's an early warning sign. It breaks my heart that we suffer in silence so much. Beyond Ourselves is a podcast where I, Taylor Camille, share stories by those living a life fully and beyond any stigma or perceived limitations a health condition may have on their day-to-day lives. For season two of this series, we're highlighting stories from Black men. The stigmas around caring for their health and bodies beyond fitness and examining masculinity. As always, please share and subscribe if you haven't already. Today we are speaking with Halim Ali. He is based out of Denver and he is a mental health advocate with an organization called From the Heart. And we are talking all things mental health, a topic that I think is always relevant, but is especially relevant given today's climate, whether you live in the United States or not, there are a lot of things that are affecting our mental health. I think mental health is something that we take for granted and figuring out how to rehabilitate people from mental illness is more than a notion. But thankfully there are people like Halim that are doing a lot of the work. So I was grateful to have this moment with Halim to reflect on all the things that can affect our mental well-being. This episode is a little longer than our typical, but I thought it was crucially important. There are a lot of takeaways and affirmations that I got from this conversation, and I hope you'll take away a few of your own. Here's Halim. My name is Halim Ali. And I am the founder and executive director for From the Heart Enterprises. And I am one of the co-founders for the King's Council Black Male Health Initiative. And our organization was founded, From the Heart was founded about four years ago. And originally we were serving men coming out of incarceration, coming out of rehabilitation situations, those who were transitioning back into society and family life. And we ended up here. It wasn't intentional. Like it says, man may plan, but God is the best of planners. And we ended up, you know, teaching mental health modalities, five protective factors, the wellness recovery action plan, adult mental health first aid, youth mental health first aid, because we found that it was such an under-discussed topic and an under-discussed issue, especially with men in general, but especially with Black men. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Ma'am. Where did the name From the Heart come from? What was the inspiration there? You know, when <laughs> I when we began this thing in 2016, I have a very big family on my mother's side and my father's side. So I originally brought together all of the young men, and I'd say young men between the ages of 25 and 45 in the family to start this thing called From the Heart for the sake of our uh, family legacy and creating something. And ironically, one of my uncles, my mother's brother, came and attended one of our early meetings 
And he said, you know, whatever you brothers do based off of where you're from, you have to do it from the heart. You know, don't do anything unless it's from the heart. And that just resonated with me. It just stuck with me when he said it. And I, <laughs> I ran with it. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah, that's so true, though, because if it's not from the heart and it's not, it's not worth it. Yeah. What are we doing? If we're not coming from the heart, then where are we coming from? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, do you remember how you were first even introduced to mental health? I remember reading, you know, you talk a lot about your background, having been a fighter, got, you were incarcerated, homelessness, you experienced homelessness and just found yourself in dark places. I wonder like when, when did mental health in this kind of what, I guess, yeah, where in your journey led you to mental health and finding out, you know, something beyond the mode that you were already in? Wow. And, you know, Taylor, it's so much I can say about that. I would have to say, you know, my journey through religion and spiritual practices ultimately led me to mental health. And I'll tell you why. Because as a child of seven, eight years old, I remember sitting in the church with my mother and my brothers, and there was a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus on the fan. And I would ask my mother, who is this man? And she said, that's, you know, Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. And in my soul, you know, and I'm looking around, I see all these black faces. I don't see any white faces and it didn't seem right something just felt off with that like no i want to believe you because you're my mother but i i don't like the way that makes me feel mm -hmm. right and i knew at seven six seven years old seven eight years old something was wrong with that something mm -hmm. was wrong with black people worshiping a white person that's that never resonated with me and so but this is my mother, the authority in my life. My father's sitting there. He's doing the same thing. So I wanted to accept this. But I, you know, what it made me do, because after being told this, I would, I remember going home and scrubbing my skin to get to the white part. Because, you know, what unconsciously happened was my parents were unconsciously teaching me to hate myself. Mm -hmm. Right. And that in itself is a mental illness, because if this is God and he's white and I'm black, how do I feel when I look in the mirror except inferior? How do I get to that white part? Right. So this was my beginning of self-hate, which led ultimately to self-destructive behavior. Right. Because I idolized. You know, I would see my parents and the elders around me idolizing a figure in which, you know, we all want to please our parents. We all want to please our elders. But that was one way of pleasing them that was highly unattainable because I could never be white. It didn't matter how, how good I played sports, how good I could read, how good I did math, what my grades were. The point is, I can never look like the figure that you have presented to me and, and told me this is God. I could never look like this, but I can look around and my teachers look like that. The president looks like that. 
all people in authority, the police, they look like that. Mm -hmm. Right. So I had a natural inclination to surrender to white authority, to white men in authority, because ultimately that was a subconscious or subliminal message that that sent to me as a child. Right. And it led to and, and, and if you think about it, you have to exist with a certain level of cognitive dissonance to even accept that into your reality or right. into your experience. You have to tell yourself certain things in order to accept that. And living in cognitive dissonance is never healthy. It never leads to positive health outcomes, right? So now I began to partake in self-destructive behavior. I mean, even as a child, always fighting because I hated myself because I could never be white. Mm -hmm. I could never be that holy man that I see on these fans. I want to be that. I don't want to be a football player. I didn't want to be a basketball player. I want to be a holy man. I want to be a healer, right? And if this is how I have to look in order to do so, which I was being taught, it was an unattainable goal. So therefore, I had to create this cognitive dissonance in my mind. And, you know, I would act out, you know, and when I would act out, I was told that I was a juvenile delinquent. I was bad. And my thing is, you know, as a Leo, you know, as a fire <laughs> sign, whatever I do, I'm going to be the best at it. So if you tell me I'm a juvenile delinquent, OK, I'm going to be the best juvenile delinquent I can be. Mm -hmm. Right. And. You know, it led to a life of crime, led to me getting shot by the time I was 19, led to early fatherhood. You know, I had my first child when I was 17 years old. And when I look back after, I'd say it wasn't until maybe nine years ago, maybe nine years ago, and my my second youngest daughter began cutting herself. And mm. this is why I got into the mental health field. It wasn't because of my own uh, mental illness, but it led me to unravel and really understand that I had a mental illness. I wanted to understand what my daughter was going through, mm -hmm. right? Because I couldn't think from that mind. I felt helpless. I felt hopeless. Like I got to save my baby. So yeah. I began to acquire this information. I went through youth mental health first aid. I began to study all these different modalities. And as I began to learn about PTSD and the signs of post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic slave syndrome and sleep apnea, hypervigilance, you know, all of these symptoms I was able to identify with. And I said, wow, I have actually been living with a mental illness all of my life. Because I experience all of these things. I can't sleep at night, right? Uh, a sense of foreshortened future, right? I didn't think that I would live past 30. So therefore, I didn't plan to live past 30. And when I hit 32, 33, my hands were up in the air like, what am I supposed to do? I, I wasn't supposed to live this long. Mm -hmm. And this is all mental illness. And as I began to learn about you know, our customs and mores in Africa and how, you know, rites of passage, you know, when a young man would come back from war or any man would come back from war or a crisis, they would be required 
to spend three months with the local shaman before they were allowed to enter back into society or civilization mm. for the sake of healing. Right. So now after being shot, after having felonies at an early age, after being incarcerated, never any intervention, no intervention. So it's almost like you go through these crises or these traumatic situations in your life. And one thing about it is, you know, yes, there's a very heavy depression that sits in, but that I didn't feel like I was able to talk about because I didn't want people, you know, the stigma that's attached to talking about how we feel or our emotional state. We attach these things to looking weak, to being weak, right? To not having courage, right? Because as we're raised, we're told, don't cry. You know, mm -hmm. you better not cry. You better pull yourself up by the bootstrap. So it's never an opportunity, like you said, to talk about how we're feeling. So all of these suppressed feelings that I was living with for so long, and even once I identified the feelings, then I had to name, you know, the symptoms, right? In terms of when we look at signs and symptoms in uh, the mental health or behavioral health industry, the signs are something everyone can see, but the symptoms, that's what we deal with event, you know, um, initially before there are signs, the mm -hmm. signs come after the symptoms. And I was experiencing these symptoms of depression, of anxiety, of all of these different, and I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know what to name it, what to call it, what I was going through, what I was experiencing. So I would say my initial you know, identifying what it was happened, I'd say within the last three, four years. Wow. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy that it took your baby girl, right, for you to have this like introspective moment for yourself and look at the ways that you were unhealed or the ways... I mean, I'm thinking about just that idea of men coming back from war and healing with a shaman. Like, who who is that person? What is that place that people can go to, you know, when they've been through something so turbulent, especially having been incarcerated or all these things? These are supposed to be rehabilitation mm -hmm. um, facilities, right? And people often come out almost sometimes worse than they went yes. in. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, yeah, that's just interesting to think about. I mean, would you say now you have a definition of mental health and wellness? Absolutely. What would Absolutely. that be? Well, what I realize is it's a journey and not a destination. Mm -hmm. Each day we have to do things that will lead toward, you know, a healthy mind state right? That will uh, lead toward breaking generational trauma, generational curses, right? To fuel my work and to keep compassion fatigue at bay and burnout, I spend a lot of time with elders mm -hmm. and learning about Black males, like truly, because it's not textbook 
it's not so much textbook what what ends up happening i sat with the elder a couple weeks ago drove an hour and a half one way to be with this brother and he was a green beret a veteran but was a special forces delta force black man and this brother was telling me he said man i have easily a thousand kills under my belt and he told me of some of his experiences but my my premier takeaway from the conversation he told me right now i'm on over 21 medications that i have to take every day Mm. he said i only sleep two hours a night because i'm haunted by the faces of the lives of the people that i took and he Mm. said you know I, you know, I can't be religious because I'd be a hypocrite. I've done too much bad to say that I believe in God. And he said, Mm -hmm. war is my religion. And he said, there is no amount of medicine. There is no amount of therapy. There is no doctor, right? This is something that I have to live with. And I really thought about that hard and long. And I said, what must that be like? Right. What must that be like? Because we have to understand there are social determinants that lead to mental illness or mental disorders. Mm -hmm. There's social determinants. There are things that can lead to a mental breakdown. Right. So when I say that it's an everyday challenge, I'm not going to say struggle, but I'm talking about, you know, one of the modalities I teach the wellness recovery action plan. And one of the things that we lack, we don't have very many therapists or specialists that look like us, Mm -hmm. right? So when I say, you know, I have court ordered groups of men through human services and in one of the sessions and, and these men are active gang members, right? And, you know, they, they have to come through my fatherhood class in order to see their children. I have to sign off. So I become that shaman that they have to sit with And it's not three months, it's six weeks, right? But in that six weeks, we really do some intensive digging. So I remember one evening we were talking about the subject was parental resilience. And I said to the men, let's just look at overall resilience. What does resilience look like? All right. And we went around and they said what they thought. And I said, now let's talk about the opposite of resilience, self-hate self-destruction let's put it in a context and i remember i had in a midst in in a classroom of 27 men i had one caucasian male the rest hispanic and black men active gang members and i remember one day during this session the caucasian male wore a red hoodie a red hoodie and i remember pointing to him when we started talking about the opposite of resilience. I pointed to one of the guys in the class who was a crip. And I said, you're a crip, right? Active. And he said, yeah. And I said, so let's talk about self-hate and self-destruction. I said, so the opposite of resilience. If you were to see this, this red hoodie coming down your street, you would look. And the first thing you would do is look at the color of the man's skin who's wearing the hoodie. I said, if it, if you see that it's a white man wearing this hoodie, you're going to give him a pass. But if you see that under this hoodie is a man that looks just like you, you're going to want to kill him. Mm-hmm. 
That's the definition of self-hate, self-destruction, and mental disorder. Let's call a thing a thing, right? We don't need, we don't have to be married to or tethered to these European definitions of mental illness because for us, it's something totally different. And it comes from a totally different place that is a lot of times, I feel like, unrecognizable to them. Yeah. Right. Wayne Chandler in his book, Ancient Future, he said that Europeans stand on the periphery of the black experience and think that they are somehow osmotically connected because we haven't had the same experiences. So how can you speak to my experience? Right. It's so true. It's like you how you started talking about the cognitive dissonance and it just pulls it all together. And then I think what's been apparent to me is just so many people feel like they don't have an access point to wellness and they don't feel like they have people that they can lean on that understand their experience and understand mm. what they're going through. And so I mm. think that's why the work that you're doing is hugely important because you know, you come from a standpoint of someone who experienced many of the things that people you are, you know, talking to through these workshops are going through and don't don't see a way out because they're so, mm -hmm. so in that mode of, you know, fighting <laughs> and not knowing what they're fighting even, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. almost fighting themselves. I mean, it's crazy. This is a big question and I think you're already doing a lot of the work where you are, you're in Denver, right? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, but I just think about how do we continue this movement, right? Like how do we educate and how do we give access to these resources to black men, especially? Well, I think it's like with anything, right? If you mm -hmm. think about hip hop in the nineties, you know, when F the police, when NWA dropped that, it was something that everybody felt, you know, it took one person to really say it for us to look at it and say, yeah, that's how I feel. Right. That's exactly how I feel. So it takes someone to stand up. And I think, you know, to make it for lack of a better word, you know, make it sexy, make it cool, make it acceptable, right. You know, to where mm -hmm. it's not taboo. You know what I mean? What we did, I trained four black men and two black women in the wellness recovery action plan. Now, this is a different approach toward mental health, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, a, it's a different approach, but what it does, it puts the onus of your wellness on you. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know, we have, we all have stressors. We all have early warning signs. We all understand when things are breaking down for us and we all have experienced some form of crisis. However, in those times, you know, we look at these things, we look at stressors, early warning signs, all of these different emotional states through five key concepts. So we look at it through hope. Okay. When I'm experiencing a stressor, where's my hope? right? Mm -hmm. In this stage, or I look at it through self-advocacy or personal responsibility, support, education, right? What do I know about myself to where if I don't address 
this stressor or this early warning sign, then it is detrimental and it will eventually turn into a, uh, a crisis, mm-hmm. right? So when I look at the national movement that is happening around mental health and the mental health industry being a $13 trillion a year industry, it lets me know that there are obviously services being provided. There are obviously services being used. There are obviously people out there who are championing these services. It's just not our men. It's just not our uh, demographic, right? So Mm -hmm. I had a friend who passed away about two months ago through alcohol poisoning. And I've seen this brother for three years drink himself to death. And I guess about four or five months ago was the last time I saw him. And I remember he called me for a ride. I pick him up. It's nine in the morning. I'm taking him to his appointment. He pulls a a bottle of vodka out of his pocket. And he asked me, do I want something? No, man. And he takes a swig. And I said, bro, what are you going through that you got to have a drink at 9 a.m. in the morning, brother? And he just looked at me as if he wanted to say something, but he just couldn't speak. And he looked at me like, man, I wish I could tell you what I'm going through. And, you know, several months later, his uh, girl called me and told me that he had passed away. And I really thought about that. Like, what Mm -hmm. could I have done? I mean, this was a brother. He was in his late 40s. And I was asking, I beat myself up for a couple of days. And I said, you know, what could you have done? And, you know, the trauma that he had experienced was generational, Mm -hmm. right? So we're talking about generational trauma. We are talking about the undoing of generations of trauma. Mm -hmm. We, We are talking about addressing, truly addressing the elephant in the room. And my thing is, Before we can truly expand our wings to embrace everybody, we first have to embrace and take accountability within our own families. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things I learned last year, right? I have a 20-year-old daughter, and I just learned last year that at eight years old, she was molested by a family member. Mm. And when I went to talk to my mother about it, my mother told me, you know, Halim, we didn't tell you because we knew that you would have killed him. So it's these family secrets mm-hmm. that are continuing to plague us, right? And so we have to start having these honest conversations behind the walls of our own families because one of the most toxic things that happen in the black family is what happens in this family stays in this family. What happens in this house stays in this house. Right. Because then it's almost like we're imprisoned and and at the same time tethered to this atrocity, to this family curse. We have to be tethered to it. Right. So I feel like that's one of the first places where we have to start is taking that family inventory, that self inventory, and then taking that family inventory. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, for even your friend feeling, you know, all that weight on him that he couldn't even express it, whatever he was going through, 
it's you are truly trapped and tethered to to those feelings and i mean not until you're able to experience i mean therapy is one thing but just even just an inviting group that makes you feel like you can just let some of that stuff go or be heard or be seen i mean do you feel like there's an there's an out there's an alternate you know absolutely a few weeks ago i took seven black men and we did a sweat lodge now this was my fourth sweat lodge i did my first sweat lodge over a year ago are you familiar with the sweat lodge Mm -mm, what's that okay so my first sweat lodge i did it it was on this indigenous indian ground at a place called woodbine ecology center in uh, sedalia colorado and what it was it was a six hour uh, process. So mm-hmm. if you could imagine one end of a bamboo stick lodged into the earth and then brought over to another area of the earth and the other end being lodged into where it forms an arc. And then the hides of animals being put over these bamboo skins to create a shelter of sorts, like a teepee, but it's actually a lodge. And inside the lodge, you have a hole in the middle of the ground. Now, what ends up happening is we take lava rocks and mineral rocks and we put them on a rack. We put pine needles and wood underneath the metal rack and we put the about 24 lava rocks on top of the rack. And then we take lumber and logs and we lodge them over the rocks and we light up the timber and the pine needles under the rack and we let these lava rocks and the fire from the pines, it catches on to the wood that is over the rocks, and we let these rocks heat up for about two hours, mm-hmm. all right? And then we bring up about three gallons of water from a nearby stream, three five-gallon buckets of water. We take them in the lodge before we take the rocks. So the rocks are heating up outside of the lodge, all right? So now what ends up happening We would all be in shorts and we would have a towel around our shoulders and we would get on our knees and we would crawl in behind the shaman in a clockwise direction into the lodge, all right, around the hole in the middle of the ground. Now, the shaman has drums and he has uh, a pair of deer horns. So now the deer horns are used to bring in the hot lava rocks seven at a time. There's four rounds four 30-minute rounds. So what we do, we bring in seven lava rocks, we put them in the middle, and then we pull the cover over the mouth of the lodge, and now it's completely dark. All you can see is the orange from the heat of the lava rocks and the mineral rocks. And then the shaman begins to chant, and he begins to pour the water on the rocks and we're uh, burning sage and eucalyptus, throwing these plants on the rocks and it's burning, filling the lodge with incense, with steam, with heat. Now it is symbolic of climbing or crawling back into the womb of the mother, right? Because since we've come out of the womb of the mother, we've been affected by jealousy. We've been affected by anger, rage, all of these different things. So the idea is to crawl back into the womb of the mother and to be purged of these things. So the first round is typically reserved for, 
we talk about the four stages of creation in the first round. And we sing about four songs for uh, it was an Akota Indian tribe that I was introduced into this practice with. So it's four songs. The first round is usually preserved for observance of uh, the father of creation, right? Okay, so what ends up happening is we talk about the four stages of creation, how the earth was first, and then the plants, the protoplasts and minerals. And then the third stage of creation was the beasts and the animals. And the fourth stage of creation was man and woman. And then the door is opened after 30 minutes. And by this time, you're you're dripping, right? You're mm -hmm. dripping wet. And then we take a quick break. Then after two minutes, we bring in seven more rocks and we close the door again. The second round is preserved for the mother who is the river of life. So we acknowledge the mother and we chant and sing three or four more songs. And it's the drums, right? And after this round, it starts getting difficult because the heat from the rocks, from the water, right? But it's a purge that's happening. Mm -hmm. So I took about seven black men for their first sweat lodge a couple of weeks ago. And every black man I took, some were married, some were single, some had spent time in incarceration. But when I tell you, Miss Taylor, every black man I took told me that their lives were changed from that sweat lodge, that it was the most difficult thing that they had done, but so much was unlocked within them. So when, when we're talking about healing, I'm talking about deliberate healing for those who really want it, right? For those who want it, we got it. And we, and we have layers. This is the highest layer. This is the deepest layer. These are for brothers who really have had severe trauma in their lives. Mm -hmm. Right. But these are some of the things that we're doing intentionally that our four our forefathers didn't leave us the blueprint for this type of stuff. The Bible didn't leave us the blueprint for this type of healing. So it's things that we are being forced to create in this time of this pandemic. We're creating things that have never been seen. Right. Mm -hmm. For us, this is our time. So, sis, I'm hype about it. So you got to <laughs> and my excitement. Because, Devin, we're at the forefront of this thing. We're in the front. Yeah. <laughs> no other place that we should be than the front. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, I'm so happy to hear how passionate you are about this. Because I think it takes that type of passion to get other people to be excited about it, too, and to embrace it and not be afraid of it, right? Like, all you're doing is unearthing things that, you've been running from. And so Come on. let's just stop running from it, you know? And I yes. think that yes. it's so important. It's so important because it's like, what really are you fearing other than, you know, yourself? And let's just mm. face that now and, and get it done. And I think November being Male Mental Health Awareness Month, mm. it's just amazing seeing all the work that you've done, especially in response to covid and with your heart work campaign and everything else that you've mm, programmed and right scheduled on. for Black men, there's so much more that we've gotten out of this year from mm, the COVID, mm. from the police brutality. I think mm. though it's been just a hellish year, I think it's brought community into the forefront and it's brought all of these demons that, you know, on a normal day you could hide from, you could 
fill your schedule with work or friends or drinking or whatever it is. And Mm. so many people have had to sit with themselves. But thinking back to the beginning, what resources helped you or continue to help you on this journey to to make these experiences happen for people? Well, and you know what? I couldn't identify uh, just one modality. I know that pre pre COVID, I was in five schools a week, and I was in three rec centers, and I was also in a uh, women's shelter called Warren Village and doing classes out at DHS. I didn't realize how busy I had become. Mm-hmm. And once this pandemic hit, my prayer, what I realized after about a week or two, was I had grown to depend on the people. I had grown to depend on teaching and serving and helping people. That was part of my wellness plan. And I asked, my prayer was, don't take the people away from me and don't take me away from the people because Mm -hmm. I need this. And over the course of the next couple of months, like you said, we created, we created the heart work campaign. And within the heart work campaign, a lot of the programs that we started within the campaign are still happening. We have the wellness recovery action plan. It is a six week two hour a week engagement. And, you know, we're talking about recovery from, you know, whether it's divorce, whether it's a serious operation, whether it's addiction, right? Whether it's moving to a different state and getting back into your groove, right? Whether it's from a breakup, whether it's from a car accident, Mm -hmm. whether it's from a mental illness, you know, this modality it's so powerful. And then on Wednesdays, we do the five protective factors, you know, which is a fatherhood or a parenting class that we offer. And this deals with, you know, the five protective factors, they are the opposite of a risk factor. So we're talking about parental resilience, social connections, concrete support in times of need, knowledge of parenting and child development, and social and emotional competence in children. Right. So teaching these, you know, also gives me the opportunity to learn more about these modalities. We also created on Sundays for the sake of the elders in the community that no longer have their respective church communities for social interactions. We created Tai Chi in the park. So we do Tai Chi every Sunday by the mm-hmm. Martin Luther King statue. And we have about them. I mean, it's some of the most beautiful stuff you ever saw because 20 to 25 elders out there doing Tai Chi, black people, gays being up like right? <laughs> so we yeah. do that on Sunday. Uh, and then Monday, we started the King's Council Run Club, which is our part of our Black Male Health Initiative, where we meet at this, it's called Bluff Lake Conservatory Park. And it's a nature center and we jog two miles together. And, you know, to have men who haven't jogged in years or who are coming off of addiction, coming out there who can barely run, but then we don't just leave them in the dust. We'll support them. We'll encourage them. We'll jog in place while they walk a little bit and they're able to get back on that on that cycle. But, you know, supporting other people. And serving other people is my 
lifeline to joy and happiness and my own continued well-being. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, because you know now my life, my health is being used for more than just my selfish self. So this is what really keeps me singing, dancing, jumping, smiling, happy, right? Because this is us controlling our own air. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you this real quick. I had a sister hit me a couple months ago that I had never met. And she hit me on the messenger and she said, I have a message from God to you. So I was naturally intrigued. And the first thing she said to me, she said, he who controls the air controls the people. Mm-hmm. He who controls the air controls the people. And I'm, I'm like, whoa. She said, right now, if you look at America, something is thinking for them. The news is always thinking for the people. The media is thinking for the people. It has the people in an uproar, right? She said, so you have to be mindful to control your own air because you are here to give to the people. So if you fall into this mire that the rest of the people have fallen into, Right. Then there's, you know, there's not much hope. Right. So we need we need some of our leaders to be leaders. This is the time. And this is actually what prompted the hard work campaign. I said, okay, we have to create something. How can I create a space where I'm not susceptible to what the media is talking about, to where I'm not drug in by this depression, to where I'm not manipulated by all of the negativity in the news, what can we do? Mm-hmm. So in an effort to control our own air, when we start talking about our black men, you know, we're not thinking for ourselves. Gangs are thinking for us. Violence is thinking for us, right? Our OGs are thinking for us. We're not thinking for ourselves, right? We have movies thinking for us. This is why now we will measure a man by what he owns, what he possesses. That's something thinking for us. I got to have this new car so I can be somebody. I got to have this big house so I can be somebody. I got to have this brand new Rolex watch so I can be somebody. Come on, man. We ain't thinking for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And this is why we continue to die. It's not because I'm not even going to speak on the police brutality that's happening Because if we were serious about it, if we were serious about a white boy like Dylan Roof running in that church in Carolina and killing those nine people, if we were serious about protecting our women and our kids, that would never happen. Mm -hmm. That would never happen. But something else is thinking for us. That's why most black men are not ready to have a conversation with me, to be honest with you. Because I think differently. My life is for the sake of our women and children. If I'm not spending my life protecting that, then I'd I'd rather be lifeless. Mm -hmm. Take me now. But now we're watching our women and our children die. That, my sister, is mental illness and mental disorder at the highest degree. Yeah, definitely is. You see, I can keep going now. Don't mess with me, girl. (laughs) 
I know. Look, I was like, is he dead? (laughs) No, but you just, you really did. I mean, it's so real. It's so real. I think a lot of, when you say, you know, Black men aren't ready to speak to you. Another thing I've been talking to people about is just our ability or Black men's inability to feel vulnerable, to Mm. feel Mm. like, you know, they can't ask for for help or they can't say that they they don't know what to do. Mm. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, yourself, when did you or when do you feel you're most vulnerable? When do I feel most vulnerable? Mm-hmm. You know, ironically, I was, uh, there's a video that I play in one of my fatherhood classes and it's asking you know the commentator she asks how many people in here are givers are help givers and everybody raises their hand and then she says now how many people in here are comfortable asking for help and everybody's hand immediately goes down Mm. and she says well here's something i hate to burst your bubble but fact is when you attach judgment to asking for help, you are never really helping anyone without judgment. So if you yourself are unable to ask for help because you fear being judged, then you are never really helping anyone without judging them. Right. Mm. And when I, when I heard that for the first time, three, four years ago, I said, you know, I thought about all the reasons and I looked at all of the situations I had found myself in in life that I've been too prideful or ego-driven to ask for help. And when I came out of, because it wasn't very long ago when I was sleeping in my van, it was a little bit over a year ago, but that's not very long. And I remember I had a routine, you know, because I had to try and work hard to keep anyone from knowing. Mm. And it wasn't until I, I, I secured a place that I began to talk about it. And I remember I told one of my one of my sisters, and she cried and she was so mad at me. Halim, don't you ever do that again. And I saw how she reacted. And the more people that I shared my experience with, I really re- realized at that point how much I'm loved. And I don't know why I didn't think I was loved. And even in that moment, I knew I had to go through that for the for my own sake. It was some things that I had to purge and experience. However, mm-hmm. I'm vulnerable now because I know that I have people around me who are ready, willing, and able to assist if the time comes. And, you know, with From the Heart, you know, For years, we have a program called the Monthly Family Service Day, and we feed about a thousand homeless people a month. And I was doing this by myself for almost a year, every month, the last Mm -hmm. Sunday of every month, out of my pocket. So I, I, I was never accustomed to asking for help, right? And now, when we talk about vulnerable, in order to do this work, And in order to make people feel comfortable to tell their story, Mm -hmm. you have to be in touch with yourself and authentic enough and transparent enough to tell your story, which 
you know, I used to think that it would make me vulnerable. But what it does, it makes me more accessible and it increases the connection that happens to my participants. Mm -hmm. So their trust value goes through the roof. Once they know, okay, this brother's been homeless. He's been addicted to drugs. He's been shot in his chest. He's been through everything that I'm going through, right? So it creates that connection, but it also requires a lot of self-honesty and a lot of introspection, which is a term you used earlier, and it's a term that I use often. Mm -hmm. So in order to do this work, I owe it to the people to tell them who I am and, and where I've what I've overcome because that creates hope in them mm-hmm. and in me. So yes, ma'am. Yeah. One thing I've been examining this season, as I told you from the start, was black men and then black men's relation to their masculinity. And so something mm-hmm. I've been asking everyone is how do you define masculinity and what does that look like to you? And you kind of touched on it a bit with when you were talking about protecting women and children, but how would you define masculinity? When we start talking about black male mental health, trauma, and resilience, and the things we're fighting for, we cannot exclude our gay brothers. We can't. So now when I look at masculinity, I look at it more from a yin and yang perspective. Mm-hmm. Right. We all have masculine and feminine attributes. The thing is, in this hyper masculine suggestive society, right, to where mm-hmm. when we turn on the TV or these movies, we see killing, we see death. And then we connect these things to what it means to be a man. Right. We so or we see to the whole opposite side where two men are kissing. Right. So I think we have to come somewhere in the middle Mm -hmm. and understand that we because and then society will make us feel like, okay, the men are the protectors. The women are the nurturers. But we can be nurturing, too, brothers. It's all right. If our son falls and scrapes his knee, it's all right to hug him and tell him and kiss his knee, kiss his boo boo and tell him it's all right. So we're destroying these negative stereotypes and these connections to toxic masculinity. So this would be my new experiential definition of masculinity. The yin and the yang. Come on. Yeah. 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 Um, I have two questions. I'm afraid to ask you this first one because I feel like you have a lot of these, but Is there a message or a quote or a phrase you often lean into or lead your life living by? You know what? I do have a A stash. (laughs) Well, you know what? I have something that I that I feel like is a universal affirmation Mm -hmm. that I use in my mentoring groups with youth. But I can also transfer and use with the adults that I work with. When we start talking about changing negative thoughts to positive thoughts, I often use a story of a young man who was born with spinal bifida, which is a curvature of the spine. And 
by the time this young man, you know, is seven, eight years old, the doctors tell him that, you know, tell the parents, we've done everything we can do. He'll never be able to run and jump. He'll never be like the rest of the kids, you know. So I just suggest that you guys get accustomed to this, normalize this, and be there for him the best you could be, can be. The parents had spent all of their resources and money, and they didn't have any other you know, any other ideas on what to do. So everyone gave up except the young man and he created an affirmation. And the affirmation said, I am whole, perfect, strong, powerful, loving, harmonious, and happy. I am whole, perfect, strong, powerful, loving, harmonious, and happy. I am whole, perfect, strong, powerful, loving, harmonious, and happy. And he would repeat this affirmation over and over again, all day long. But what ended up happening is he convinced his body that it was true. The power of words, right? And within mm -hmm. two years, his spine had corrected itself. He had defied medical intelligence and so-called academic wisdom. He had defied the hopes that his parents had lost, right? So this is an affirmation that I have used to pull me out of some very dark places to yeah. remind myself I am whole, perfect, strong, powerful, loving, harmonious, and happy. Because after that, after that, after if you, if you, if you can believe that, if you can convince yourself of that, I am whole, perfect, strong, powerful, loving, harmonious, and happy, because what are we taught? Nobody's perfect. Mm. nobody but guess what perfection I always tell people this perfection is always relative so if you have two cars one is only less perfect than the other because of the dents or the dings or the imperfections relatively but mm -hmm. as people there aren't any two of the same people so we fall into these misperceptions of imperfection because we spend time comparing ourselves to others. Mm. When I realize that there's not another Halim Ali, then I know that this version of me is perfect because I know that my Lord only creates perfection. So when I convince myself that I am whole, perfect, strong, powerful, loving, harmonious, and happy, can't nobody tell me nothing different. <laughs> yeah can't nobody tell me nothing different and not and especially when i am exuding those qualities when i'm exuding those qualities so this has been an affirmation that has worked with my youth and adults alike so i just uh so i'll leave that i'll leave you know i can go on for days but i'm gonna leave you with that <laughs> <laughs> that is a perfect one i love that i'm gonna start saying that one i'm gonna write it and put it on my mirror so i say it because it's so true come it's on so true yes ma'am so the last thing i ask everyone and i end all my shows like this is what brings you peace and I think you'll have a lot to say about that, too. What brings me peace? Mm -hmm. First of all, let me say that peace is not passive. And 
when I immediately think about peace, I think about choosing discomfort over resentment. Choosing discomfort over resentment. Owning your voice. Being able to say no when you mean no. Protecting your yes. That's what brings me peace. Mm. Right? Because if I say yes to someone and I really mean no, I'll end up resenting myself for it later on. And that doesn't bring me peace. In the moment, saying no may be uncomfortable. Right? But I know that I won't resent myself later on. So I've really had to, over the over the course of these last several months especially, I've had to start being really intentional with my self-care because mm-hmm. I am an empath. I do pick up other people's frequencies and I have to be deliberate about my thoughts. I have to be deliberate about the, my space. I have to be more conscious and, and read people's air, right? So mm-hmm. when we talk about peace and when I say it's not passive, in that moment of saying yes, when I mean no, it might be uncomfortable for me to just say no. But it's never a time where it doesn't come back in a, you know, in a space to where, you know, I'm looking at it like, wow, I'm glad I protected myself from that situation. Beyond Ourselves is an original series produced and hosted by me, Taylor Camille. A variety of the series artwork shared here and on our Instagram at Beyond Ourselves are created by Carmen Johns and Sierra Hood. My hope is that these listenings have left you with a warm heart and an even cooler mind. I hope you are left feeling able to seek peace in the spaces and places you may find yourself in. If you're interested in being on the pod or have any compelling leads, please shoot us an email at info at beyondourselves.com and subscribe and share if you haven't already.